43 people were killed in the Attica uprising, the deadliest prison riot in U.S. history. The state paid out more than $24 million in settlements to the families of inmates and corrections officers that were killed. The inmates took over the prison on September 9, 1971, until state police retook Attica four days later, killing inmates and corrections officers who were taken hostage. Welcome to PERFCAST, the official podcast of the Police Executive Research Forum. This episode, PERF Executive Director Chuck Wexler speaks with writer and former NYPD officer Edward Conlon about the creation of the world's first hostage negotiation unit. The son of an FBI agent and a psychologist, Conlon joined the NYPD in 1995, where he investigated crimes ranging from domestic violence to homicide. Conlon's columns have appeared in The New Yorker, Esquire, and The Wall Street Journal. He's also written several books, including Blue Blood, a family memoir of law enforcement that was a national bestseller. In 2018, Conlon returned to the NYPD as a communications director. His most recent project is Talk to Me, a 27-episode podcast detailing how the NYPD established the formal practice of hostage negotiations in law enforcement. In the early 1970s, following tragedies such as the Attica prison riot and the massacre of 11 Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics, an NYPD chief named Simon Eisdorfer decided that the department needed a system for handling hostage incidents instead of just improvising a response to each crisis. An NYPD team led by Frank Bowles and Harvey Schlossberg, a clinical psychologist turned patrolman, pioneered the use of psychology in saving lives. The hostage negotiation model they created is still used around the world today. Now we join Chuck Wexler and Ed Conlon as they discuss how the events of Attica and Munich drew worldwide attention and highlighted the need for proper hostage negotiation tactics. Why was Attica so significant in what happened and what didn't happen? Well, Attica was one of the big incidents when they, when they decided we have to have a systematic approach to, to hostage crises. We, we, everybody, we and every other police department everywhere just kind of winged it before. You know, you try and talk and they were, maybe you get fed up and, and rush in and maybe it works well and maybe it doesn't work so well. But everything was improvisation. So Attica, uh, you know, there were quite a few uh, uh, jail riots in New York City at the time. So even though Attica was on a scale much, much bigger than any any kind of, you know, Brooklyn House of Detention uh, brawl, uh, which were happening pretty routinely, uh, it, they started to look at it. When they said, we gotta, we got to figure out the way to do this, they looked at Attica, and Attica was... Yeah, they just did about everything wrong in Attica. When the 1,200 inmates took over the, pr- the prison, first two people were intermediaries, and then 30 people were intermediaries. The, the warden, or rather the state superintendent of, of, of corrections, initially was negotiating, and he was the right guy to negotiate. You don't want, they were asking for the governor. You don't bring in the governor. You know, he. You don't bring in the celebrity, you don't bring in the mayor, you don't bring in whoever, because you you want a little bit of distance. You need a credible representative authority, but you don't want the absolute boss. Sometimes you want to stall. You, you want to say, you know, listen, I got I to gotta check with my boss, see if that's okay. The inmates wanted uh, Governor Rockefeller to come, and, and he didn't come. Th- th- this was all new, Ed, right? I mean, th- people just didn't know who should negotiate, 
you know, how they should handle it. I mean, it was really incredible lessons that came out of Attica, didn't it? Our notion of Attica today is not what it was in the early 70s. Clearly, it was it was a mess. The large majority of the people were killed. Hostages and inmates were killed during the retaking of the prison. The, the lesson, the urgent lesson for that was that you do not have to go in unless you really have to go in, and they didn't have to go in. They needed the governor to let the process work out. Only he had the authority to say, keep talking or go in or don't go in. 43 uh, uh, deaths in all in the, uh, the Attica uprising. So we, uh, we want to warn you that the language will be raw, but it is the language of the men. Uh, one of the uh, most... Uh, significant moments uh, today came in the testimony of uh, former inmate Howard Greenfield, who uh, said uh, that what happened in Attica amounted to a massacre. The hearings began with the testimony of Lieutenant Robert Curtis, an Attica correction officer who was held uh, as a hostage during the uprising. The whistle was blowing. Uh, we could hear sirens from police agencies or sheriff's departments as they came up to the prison. We knew that the alarm was out. You testified that uh, at the time that the inmate behind you stated that he had been hit, you had gotten a jolt in your back. Uh, were you hit by gunfire? Uh, when I got to the hospital, I found out that I had been hit by uh, rifle fire. Uh, I saw several of our people who appeared to be dead to me. I didn't touch them. So you had what happened in Attica in 1971, but then that was followed pretty quickly in 1972 by Munich. And, and here we're talking about the Munich Olympics. Obviously, the, the Germans really wanted to demonstrate how much they had progressed since World War II. So this was a defining moment uh, for the country. But in terms of hostage negotiations, why was, why was Munich so important? Munich was the most like failure of the police in dealing with a hostage situation that you could imagine, because for one thing, it wasn't it wasn't negotiation because the Israelis were talking, and the Germans did a pretty good job on the talking side. Now, it's, there's there's two parts to this. There's the talk part and the tactical part. You know, you need the, the SWAT team, the emergency service. You need capable people who, if you have to go in, they're going to go in. Um, the Germans didn't have that. So they also, they, they, they had some success in, in, in bargaining, in delaying, in compromising. The Early on, the Black September, you know, they broke it about 5 in the morning, and they were going to start shooting people, you know, at noon, one person every hour, or two people every hour. And the, the German officials managed to get them not to, but they couldn't deliver anything on their end. The, the argument with Black September wasn't with the Germans, it was with the Israelis, and the Israelis weren't going to agree to any concessions. So the negotiation was kind of empty, but successful in its own terms because they bought time. The gunmen shot dead two Israelis and are now holding 20 athletes and six officials as hostages. The guerrillas are demanding the release of 250 Arabs held prisoner in Israel and have set noon as the deadline for their release. Negotiations are going on with the German government. And nobody got killed through the afternoon and into the evening until they moved the whole show 
out of the Olympic Village to the military airport where they said, uh, untruthfully, that there was a plane waiting to take all of them, Baker and hostages, to, to Cairo. The Egyptian government wasn't going to let that happen. So the tactical, was, there was going to be a tactical ending to this story. And the Germans didn't have a SWAT team. They just got a couple of cops, five cops, which was far too few. They, they based, you know, when one of the one of the German official, uh, the interior minister, had got in to see the hostages and see who's alive and how many there were and so forth, he only saw five terrorists. So they said, okay, there's five of them. Let's send five cops to the airport. So, and they, these guys were not especially trained. They were better than average marksmen. They volunteered. They didn't have radios. There was no way of communicating with them. They didn't have scopes. They didn't have nitrogen. They didn't have anything. So these these five cops, very brave, uh, you know, they stationed them around the, 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 the where the plane was supposed to take off, and they couldn't communicate with each other. And it, one of them was killed, another was shot, uh, and uh, all the hostages were killed. And uh, only only a couple of the uh, uh, terrorists uh, were, were killed as well. So it was just an absolute mess uh, that the whole world saw. After the Munichs, you had the, the NYPD chief, Simon Eisendorfer. He comes in. He says, you know, we can't improvise on these kind of uh, issues. You know, we need to have a response. How someone conceptualizes and how did they find... Harvey Schlossberg. Now, Harvey Harvey Schlossberg, he was a patrolman in 1971, and uh, there was a new police commissioner who uh, came up, came here, and he was looking through personnel files, and he sees patrolman Schlossberg assigned to the accident investigation section as a PhD. He thought it was a misprint, and Harvey was a clinical psychologist, but he kept his careers completely separate. He went to school on his own time, paid for it himself. He, you know, he started as a cop just, you know, as a, a temporary uh, uh, job in his mind. You know, I, I got to work until I get my master's. And it, it worked out for him. He liked being a cop. But it was completely separate. He, he had his practice on the weekends or nights or whatever. And uh, he did not expect to be made the department psychologist, which is what the police commissioner made him once he noticed he had this degree. So that's only, I think, December 1971. So uh, September 1972, nine months later, when Chief Eisdorfer says, we got to come up with a plan for hostage situations, uh, who we, I guess we should have a psychologist. Hey, there's the guy. And he figured, well, I'll just look up I'll do the research. There's got to be some published material on this. Psychologists, you know, they do studies all the time. There's just got to be reams of this stuff lying around. And there wasn't, there wasn't anything. There was no study of the psychology of hostage takers or, you know, the best way to approach them. And Harvey was a Freudian. You know, Harvey's school of thought, you know, was dominant in American psychology in the middle through the end of the 20th century, I think. But he knew that, you know, you're, he, in a hostage situation, you can't talk to the guy for six months about his mother. Because he knew as a cop, you know, this is this is the street. It's fast. You've got to be moved quickly. Uh, you know, there's, there's no slow unspooling of hidden traumas 
in, 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 in dealing with this particular patient. This isn't just, you know, police culture or how guys think. Uh, and, you know, we got to be tough guys sometimes. And it, it, Harvey's insights, and again, he was just starting from scratch. So he's saying, you know, what are we, de- what are we dealing with in, in emotional terms? Well, we're dealing with frustration, we're dealing, which is somebody not getting what they want. You know, but most hostage takers don't intend to take hostages. You know, that they want to rob a bank and they get caught. So they think it's, this is the way out. So they don't get what they want. A lot of time conflict, that's wanting two things at the same time. You know, somebody, uh, you know, obviously doesn't want to go to jail, but is also enjoying a lot of attention. You know, there's reporters there asking what the guy thinks, and, you know, what does he think about this? And this, this usually very insignificant person becomes very prominent. Everybody wants to know everything about it. So he enjoys that, even though he doesn't want the situation to end the way he expects it to end, especially if he's seen Dog Day Afternoon. This is what's interesting about the NYPD, Ed. You find these people, Ed Conlon being one of them, uh, Harvey Schlossberg being another, the very unique. I mean, this is Harvey Schlossberg. He's a cop. And on the side, he's a psychologist. And suddenly he gets picked. You know, he had he had his uh, work cut out for him. Because let's go back to that period. Because as you think about the thinking in policing, you know, in that period in the 1970s, first go through the door you know go in and get those guys you know i mean yeah. what, what 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 are you hanging around here for come on you guys know what you have to do harvey schlossberg patrolman psychologist he had to get the nypd to think completely differently it, that sounds like a huge challenge the first great bit of luck obviously was harvey and harvey's you know brilliant invention of this plan now, Frank, you know, wound up being commanding officer of the team for the first nine years. And I think there was like 300 jobs. He, he freed over 800 hostages. He happened to be the perfect guy for the job. He's a, he's a very good talker. He's a very good listener. He doesn't have a big ego. If he makes a mistake, he apologizes. He, he can connect to people. And... It, had it not been that guy, it might not have worked. Um, and Frank only got the job because the lieutenant who was supposed to take over the training lived upstate in Rockland County, and the training was near Coney Island. And he says, geez, I don't want to drive for two hours a day. Frank, you want this? And that's how they got Frank, who happened to be the perfect guy for the road. I mean, he he worked as a, a, for the phone company before. And so he was good with communications equipment, jerry-rigging, you know, uh, throw phones. He was just the perfect guy for the job, and he be- and 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 he believed in it. He says, "I what Harvey was saying made complete sense to me. He taught me, and he took it to heart. And Frank and Harvey taught hundreds of departments all over the country, Canada, England. Uh, these guys, you know, you know, spread the gospel." Co-author of the program and partner in Bowles' double act is Harvey Schlossberg, a former detective with a degree in psychology. What we do is maintain control of the situation. He's going to talk to our negotiator or he talks to nobody. We don't want lawyers, mothers, priests. We don't want them talking. Basic principle, very, very simple. 
the theory is that if a guy kills somebody and he's talking to his mother or he kills somebody and he's talking to a priest, what more can you do than provide that, you know? It kind of gets you off the hook, so it's something you do for emotional reasons. On the other hand, if you really think about it logically, if this guy thought his mother loved him, if he got along with his wife, if he believed in the teachings of the church, he wouldn't be doing what he's doing. Very often, this is the audience he's playing to. Remember again, back to the theater of terror, there's always an audience. This might be the audience, and if you provide the audience, the show must go on. I am Frank Bowles, the police department negotiator. And uh, now you're identifying who you are, your first name, your last name. Police department negotiator, it gives you some authority, but the term negotiator is a nice term. I mean, there's nothing bad ever associated with negotiating. Even if somebody is shooting at you, if you have good cover, you know, uh, if you're behind a, a solid brick wall and the bullets that they're shooting at you cannot get at you, then you don't have to return fire and you don't have to endanger the other hostages. We'd seen in, in some instances, in some locales, where uh, innocent people were shot by, by their would-be rescuers. I think for, the best example was Attica. Uh, finally, there's anxiety. He, he, and I, Harvey said, this is fear, you're afraid of something specific. You know, anxiety is free-floating. You're just sort of afraid of everything. You, you, and he said, what cops have to do in this situation is, because, is to make that, in a way, is to turn that anxiety into fear by making the officer and the negotiator the object of all of that anxiety. It's to lower the temperature. And the key insight in, in reducing that anxiety is that time, almost always, is on your side. Once a bond forms between the negotiator and the hostage taker, they're not becoming, you know, they're not falling in love, it's not any great friendship forming. But if you're trading, if you're making bargains, if you're making agreements, they're saying, you know, let, let one person out, we'll send in some food, we'll send in cigarettes, we'll send in coffee. That person is living this paranoid nightmare, you know, everybody's trying to kill me. And when they realize, oh, they're not trying to kill me, you know, he's actually not the worst cop I ever met, you can do business then. People, when, they, when their anxiety is lowered, they realize that they have, they have more choices than they thought an hour ago. The cops on the, on, are, are going through, this is another insight, they're going through the exact same thing emotionally as... Uh, as the hostage taker, I mean, they're feeling fear, and they're feeling anxiety. They're 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 frustrated. They're conflicted. They want it over today. They want it over right now. But um, you know, the waiting is is the way to go. So it's hostage takers who've had heart attacks, negotiators who've had heart attacks, who've had all kinds of you know problems after after the fact with 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 the stress of the situation. You know, it's interesting because uh, I went. Harvey's class in the 70s with Bill Bratton. And I remember one part of the training was managing anxiety, just what you said. In other words, if you had a hostage taker and they weren't cooperating, you might say, move in the SWAT team to raise their anxiety. If they did something for you, you might say, okay, we'll pull the SWAT team back. This, this was a revolution in, in, in the NYPD thinking uh, this detective patrolman had to convince bosses, you know, four-star, five-star bosses that rushing in wasn't it. But there was basic lessons of the 70s, slowing things down, using time and distance, somehow became very relevant uh, in our period today. 
in terms of dealing with use of force. Do you see that? The interesting thing is that it took ages for, for the broader lessons to, to be applied. Uh, and we only started doing de-escalation training, you know, in, in 2014. It was this, this, the whole hostage negotiation was a very specific tool that you used in a very specific circumstance. But, it, you know, it kind of reminds me of, of, of the RICO laws. You know, they passed them in the early 70s. And, and, but nobody noticed or figured out, hey, we can, we can get rid of the mafia or really severely disable the mafia. You know, it was well over a decade afterwards, in the mid-'80s, before somebody realized, hey, we can use this. It'll work. In January of 1973 was the first major event where the, the premise of hostage negotiations was put to the test. And it happened when uh, four men tried to rob a, rob a sporting goods store in Brooklyn. The sporting goods store sold guns. And uh, two cops were shot, another one was killed, and it turned into this protracted siege, 48 hours. Uh, and they uh, said, let's, let's see if this stuff works. Harvey was at the scene. Frank Bowles was at the scene. Um, Frank, Frank really wasn't a major player in it. Ben Ward, who was a deputy commissioner, went on to become the first black police commissioner. He was there. And the, the, after the first gun battle, which went on for about 40 minutes, where, and again, where three cops were, were, were shot, one fatally, the police didn't fire a single round for the next two days. And they managed to success. It ended without anybody else getting hurt. It, it was a major success, and it was very, very public. And as I say, that was those, those days were not the best days for the NYPD because crime had been out of control for since the— mid-60s, the Knapp Commission uh, had published these devastating exposés of, of police corruption, and it was all true, uh, but it was really demoralizing for cops, all kinds of cops, you know, the cops who never took a nickel in their life, you know, these, these are cops that this cop's wife got a new coat, the neighbors would look and roll their eyes, I don't know where that money came from. So it was just, it was a horrible time for, for the police department. You know, um, I remember Harvey told this story about uh, this program. He consulted with the who's who of psychiatrists in New York, and he said he had devised some kind of system that when there was a hostage situation, uh, the phone would ring in each of their offices, and they'd pick up and they'd consult. That's what psychiatrists do, right? They talk to each other. And he said, you know, the day this happened, you know, he said, we'll try the system. They picked up the phone. They answered it. And, you know, he told them what they had. And one psychiatrist said, you know, uh, why don't you lob in the tear gas? And Harvey said, well, it's a, you know, it's a wooden structure. If we log in the tear gas, uh, the place will probably ignite on fire. And there was a pause. And then the psychiatrist said, well, if you do it fast enough, they, they, they should escape. And Harvey, in his Harvey's way, you know, said, that wasn't the response I thought I was going to get from the who's who of psychiatrists of New York. Yeah, they, they all showed their inner dirty Harry uh, when, when uh, he was trying to teach cops to be more psychological in the approach. You know, the psychologist wanted, you know, wanted to kick ass and take names. So there's so many interesting parts of it to me inside of, you know, as a, as a cop or former cop, you know, just to see how ideas become institutional realities. <laughs> it was 
it was by no means a sure thing that this would this this would stick. There's been a million pilot programs that are some of them very well designed that are they're filing cabinets somewhere. And that, uh, Harvey didn't know how well it would work in the beginning. He knew it would be better than just winging it, but he didn't know if it would work two out of three times or four out of five times or 99 out of 100. It worked. They were surprised uh, by their own success, I think. I mean, even now, there's a, there's uncertainty in, in, in a lot in, in just about every situation you approach. And that it worked. I mean, and it worked. It worked in negotiation and obviously hostage situation, but it can work in a whole variety of much wider series of circumstances that cops deal with every day. I mean, you de-escalate. You calm people down. You know, obviously there are times you, you, you're threatened. You have to respond in kind and make force with superior force. But in most instances, you can lower the temperature and come to a better a resolution. Thanks for listening to this episode of PERFCAST, the official podcast of the Police Executive Research Forum. Please be sure to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and stay tuned for upcoming episodes. For more information on PERF, visit www.policeforum.org or follow us on Twitter at Police Forum. Thanks again for listening.